I'm Ernst Sundle with another Voice of Freedom program. This one is going to be an unusual interview. I chased all over Europe, all over Canada, and many parts of the United States before I finally found an eyewitness, an inside person that was actually in a very famous or infamous organization, depends on where you come from, called Odessa. I had discussed this type of an organization with none other than Otto Skorzeny, Germany's famous Commando Extraordinaire, the German chief of our commando operations. And uh, he told me, he was in Spain at the time, he told me that Ernst, much of the stories about Odessa are nothing but hype, exaggerations, and uh, the sums that are being heaved around that was available to this organization. He said, I just wish we would have had that kind of money because depending on what scribbler you are listening to, we are talking hundreds of millions of dollars. I know there are books out called The Odessa File and then Belarus File. And another one, an author who has made a regular living off this kind of genre of story was a Jewish writer formerly from Frankfurt called Ladislas Farago. And he is big on Bormann, Bormann survival stories. Others, of course, are very big on Hitler survival stories. There are 14 scenarios with Adolf Hitler having escaped from Germany. And so in the public mind, many of these trashy novels, pocket books, so-called TV documentaries, movies, all paint this picture of this semi-terrorist organization, this underground railroad from the fatherland, from Germany, via the Vatican down to Latin America. So I hope that you will find this story interesting. I certainly spend a lot of time and effort to get it filmed. And sadly, the lady... Clara von Keltner died within weeks after I filmed this particular segment in the United States. Well, my name is Carla von Keltner. Um, <clears throat> I've been living many years in the United States. Uh, when I was young, I lived in Brazil, and uh, I got to know the some of the German community there in, in Brazil. In fact, I owe my life to a man who was going to be my, turned out to be my future husband. And through him, I met many of the people involved in, uh, in political activities there, and particularly in the rescue and salvage activity, salvage of human beings and human values, that has <coughs> come to be known as Odessa. Um, in addition to the functions that uh, are absolutely 
Everybody knows that, that it is a veterans organization and it is dedicated to the peaceful rebuilding of, of uh, Germany and helping the men who fought so valiantly and so bravely rebuild their lives and rebuild the, the businesses and the, uh, the educational institutions that were completely destroyed by the war, helping particularly young men whose lives were totally disoriented because they, they bravely volunteered as, as young secondary school students to, to fight for their country and then were rewarded by being spat upon. And I, I, I got to know a good many of these young people and uh, learned to treasure their friendship and, and their, their uprightness, their honesty, and their values. The way you met your husband, your, your husband-to-be, yes. explain to us where this took place, when, and uh, how then you came to marry him. Well, I was living in Rio de Janeiro, and being a smart alecky, know-it-all, 17-year-old, I decided that the red flag, which meant don't go swimming, didn't mean me. So I went out and uh, then discovered there was a very nasty rip current, which was pulling me out towards the rocks, in which I couldn't swim across. And uh, Horst and Erich uh, dove into the water to save this poor, stupid girl and dragged me on shore, and you know how it is. If you save somebody's life, then you're just responsible for them forever. Old <laughs> Chinese, old Chinese uh, custom, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so you got married when? Short, uh, about long time after that, or? Oh, about 1949. 1949. And the, this event took place when? This was, this was in 1946. 46. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you got married where, if I may ask? Um, actually, we were married in Georgia. In Georgia, United Georgia, States. In, uh, in the United States, yes. He, um, my parents returned to the United States, and uh, naturally I, I had to, too, and he followed me. Hmm. So we were, um, this was something of a stormy romance, but, uh, hmm. you know, and I didn't have very long with him, but it's worth more to me than a lifetime with any other man. Hmm. Now, he was involved with Odessa? Yes. Yes, he was. He was um, from its very inception before the end of the war. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't called Odessa at that particular point in time, but mm -hmm. that's what it came to be called later. So, tell me, then, was it a conscious creation by the German government, by the German military, before the war ended to create such an organization to help potential survivors or that was that was it it was uh, exactly that the idea um, and the faction of, of after much dis debate and discussion the the decision was made to use available resources to um, to help rebuild lives and knowing that the complete and total catastrophe that would follow the German defeat uh, would destroy a good many of German values and a good many of lives of innocent young people who had done nothing, nothing wrong at all except to love their country and to, to fight for. And um, the decision was made to 
to salvage what could be salvaged and to rebuild and instead of um, seeking revenge um, to, to, to be constructive and to, to build a shining future for Germany. So the image that we have of Odessa from books by Forsyth and uh, Ladislas Parago and these people is wrong? It's about as correct as saying that uh, every American chews gum, wears a cowboy hat, and rides to work on his Wild West pony. It's a stupid stereotype that has been very profitable for a group of, of uh, unscrupulous novelists, screenwriters, media hacks, and exploited to the extent, that if, if you believe of the school of, of mine that believes that uh, Every German sleeps at attention and says nothing but Heil Hitler. Uh, I guess you can believe that kind of stereotype about Odessa if you want to. It's totally ridiculous. Odessa was a working organization dedicated to rebuilding lives, rebuilding the infrastructure, and a very positive force. So the stories of uh, Mengele being coming down the pipeline and oh, war criminals being, uh, you know, kind of uh, shipped from monastery to monastery and so on. Oh, please. Nothing, nothing like it. Nothing like that, no. To be sure, the, the monasteries, particularly in Europe, all over Europe, have always had a policy of aiding the fugitives. They aided people who needed to escape uh, from the the, the Kaiser's regime, and they needed, and back before that, from the Thirty Years' War, and that tradition has has certainly continued, without asking questions or or personal beliefs. And so, to that extent, I suppose you might contribute the, the fact uh, it's sort of a specious logic, you know, um, on, on same sort of thing that. Uh, you can prove that tomato juice is terribly dangerous stuff because 90% of all convicted criminals enjoy tomato juice, you know. Mm -hmm. It's one of those non-sequiturs that uh, I'm certain somewhere along the line somebody was, uh, whose record was not impeccable was given sanctuary by a monastery and passed down the pipeline. But basically, no, this was not the point of uh, Odessa. The point was to, to salvage what was good and salvage the the wealth of the nation and the human wealth of the nation. Mm -hmm. And that was done regardless of nationality because of course many of these men would not be necessarily German, is that correct? That's correct, yes. It, um, after all, the SS was the first European army. Mm -hmm. More than 50% were non-German. And it had nothing to do with nationality. It had to do with with need and, and perceived potential when, when it was possible to to salvage them. I wasn't involved specifically, but I know that, that in some of the schools uh, there were large groups of um, young men from Holland, from, from Denmark, from Norway, uh, from just about everywhere in the world. Um, they tended to keep them more or less in national enclaves just primarily because they were suffering enough transplant shock and they needed some some stability and someone they could talk to in their own native language 
but basically it had nothing to do with nationality, it had to do with service. This cost money yes. to run this. Yes. And there were, of course, wild rumors in the books that I already mentioned. And uh, can you enlighten us where the funds came from or how they were dispensed and uh, what controls there were over the money? Oh, I'm not privy to a whole lot of that. I do know that before the end of the, during, even before the war began, the SS was a very wealthy organization. It ran a great many enterprises that very few people know anything about. Uh, a manufactory of uh, extremely, extremely fine swords, for example, uh, a porcelain factory. Many of these enterprises were actually owned by the SS, and it did have a substantial uh, amount of money available to it. And before the end of the war, much of this money was placed in neutral countries, knowing that um, it might be very necessary to have funds available, and since funds in German banks would obviously be immediately frozen if they, even, if they were even physically still around, um, it was decided to place it in various places, and it was not in Switzerland. <laughs> Mm. It was, uh, and it was, it was honestly earned money, money that actually was earned by the various enterprises and had nothing to do with anything that was stolen. So none of the Nazi gold idea and the melted down gold teeth and all that? That stuff is about as accurate as <sighs> politicians dream. There's really no... That was certainly not where this, this financing came from. And the men who administered the money after the war, you met some of them. What were they like? Um, very, very intelligent, very um, upright, very extremely, uh, extraordinarily honest. Not one of them would have diverted a single penny to his own use. Um, ones that I, a couple of the ones that I dealt with were absolutely brilliant administrators. Did a lot of successful investing. Did a lot of um, well organized planning and made the most of what resources were available. And there were also, of course, good many people who believed that what we were doing and gave, if not monetary support, uh, physical and other kinds of support. Meaning with facilities or Facilities or, or making land available to us mm -hmm. or making resources for the school available, and, uh, volunteering their time to help. And many, many people gave very, only, only the things that they could, and, and including one lovely lady who always brought us a, every week a dozen fresh eggs. Uh, all she could give. Which was a treasure. Yeah. It was a treasure. And it was not illegal? Uh, not as far as I know. Uh, some forced, some, some areas were forbidden by some countries and by some pressure groups. And of course they've been pressured terribly. After all, it is and as soon as you put SS into everything, um, you can't do it unless, of course, you also uh, 
have some extraordinary pejorative comment to go along with it, the obligatory nastiness, as they call it. Which form did the rebuilding or the salvaging of lives take? What was, I mean, it's one thing to have an organization in place, but how did you, for instance, find the men that you decided, and what criterion did you choose them? Where did you find them? And then how did the rebuilding of their lives take place? How does, how did it work? Oh, I can only speak to the part that I was in, actually mm -hmm. involved with, and that was um, some of the more experienced junior officers and non-commissioned officers were sent to search for young soldiers who had been let out of those hideous uh, concentration camps that were run for German soldiers along the Rhine and other uh, and try to recruit them to come to various safe havens, some all over Europe. I'm, I'm, I really don't know where. I know Spain and, and Portugal and um, other areas in Europe, and some in South America. Um, I was involved almost exclusively with the South American, uh, the Brazilian. Tell us about the, the the role of the Foreign Legion at time was to very heavily recruit these defeated Germans. Yes, absolutely. Uh, defenders of Jin Ben Phu were mostly German. The whole point was, of course, it was cheap cannon fodder. Uh, there were a number of young men who had been literally turned loose in a destroyed world. They had no longer families. They, their whole Everything was gone, the street that they lived on, the town they lived in. Uh, there was nothing there. They had been denied their civil rights. They were not allowed to enter university because of their military service. And there was nothing for them. Uh, the alternative would be a life of crime because they had no, they'd been in, in combat for, for uh, much of the, uh, of their young adult lives. They, some of them were recruited right out of uh, whole high school classes. Uh, the veterans would go in and say, boys, your country needs you, and they would say, yavol, and uh, go from equivalent of our high school directly into the military, and having spent two years in, in, in very bitter combat, and then suddenly turned loose with nothing, and no way to earn a living, no saleable skills, no, nobody wanted them, the country turned its back on them. Uh, this, their thanks was really to be kicked and spat upon. And the only thing that, the only people at, at that time smart enough to see this potential was of course the French Foreign Legion who said, oh boy, cheap trained combat soldiers that we can use and burn up and look at the, the history of the Legion in after, right after the war. One stupid combat after another, militarily totally indefensible, and you would never do that with troops you valued. They were simply cannon fodder to be burned up, used up, and we tried to save as many of them as we could from, from that. Now, how did Odessa go about rescuing those young men? They Again, only I can only tell you the part that I know, which is a very small tip of the iceberg, but uh, 
uh, at one point they had uh, full-page ads in the German newspapers. I'll just show you how, how secret this organization I was going to say, hardly, hardly the hallmark of a top-secret underground, right? Not exactly. Not mm -hmm. when you take the full-page full ad and, and mm -hmm. uh, urge veterans who were particularly... One ad I remember was urging uh, veterans who were having a difficult time re-entering civil, civil life to, to come and, and uh, get counseling and get, uh, get help. And, um, that was very successful in recruiting, but many times the um, some of the non-coms simply went out, combed the the lines in front of the the French Foreign Legion, and said, "You there, what was your unit?" And just said, "You know, don't do this. Um, mm -hmm. We can give you something better." And they recruited a good many of them that way, just just plain physically yanking them out of the of the lines and saying, "We have better to offer you." It wasn't an easy way to do it, but uh, it, was, it was quite successful. We're looking at post-war Europe, you know, where the country, Germany itself, is being divided into four military sectors. There is no such thing as a freedom to travel like today. You don't just hop on your next jet and fly hither and yon. The men who salvaged these young fellows and uh, by whatever route brought them on those steamers and trampers and tram steamers and send them off to Latin America. What was, the, do you know how this worked with passports or, or uh, how, how, did, how did they, I mean this is pretty adventuresome, you know, this is the story of which novels are made, <laughs> right? Yes, and some of the stories are, are very adventuresome and I can put a plug in for my future book. Um, you can read about one of them, um, one of the escape routes. There two were two major ones. Um, as far as passports and, uh, if not passports, papers that allowed them to move from one place to another. Um, the denizens of Hogan's Heroes were not the only ones who were excellent forgers. <laughs> After all, they had resources and uh, some uh, you know, not everybody who was working for the Allies was in total sympathy with them, and uh, they helped when they could. Now, how did they get to South America? That's one heck of a journey in it's destroyed Europe. Journey. How did they do yes. that? Um, just about any way they could. The uh, major transportation modes were, were things like tramp steamers, uh, certainly was no luxury cruise that those boys went on, but uh, most of the time they were able to arrange passage on uh, freighters and uh, just in small groups. They, I was involved with one small group of, of young men who were uh, in their 18 to 20 age group and had been combat veterans and fighting in the roughest sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat for for almost two years, and um, they felt that by removing them in part from destroyed Europe into a more, more peaceful scene that they could help them psychologically and physically, because many of them had uh, uh, severe uh, problem, physical problems as well, to rebuild their lives, to study and get ready for the abitur, the German Entrance, uh, college, uh, 
university entrance exam against the time when the uh, feeling was that we would be able to and were uh, able to get the decree rescinded that took their civil liberties away and made it impossible for them to go to university. And eventually that was another part of Odessa that I don't know anything about, but I know that they were instrumental in, in restoring the civil rights of these young men. And uh, by preparing them uh, physically and mentally to re-enter the mainstream of German life, that we could salvage this pool of, of talent and these, these, these gifted young men who, not that they were all geniuses, but all of them had something to offer. If it, whether it was uh, high intellectual capacity or simply uh, good, honest work ethic, and we were very successful with with uh, with many of them. They were able to go eventually, most of them, to university and go on into either a professional or a business career and become productive and useful citizens. I'm particularly interested in the nitty-gritty. So they are on this steamer, they are coming over to Brazil, they are disgorged in some port, and then what would take place? Uh, they would be met by representatives of Odessa who had arranged uh, lodging for them and an uh, opportunity to go to school and uh, also taken over to such things as uh, treatment of uh, of injured, physical injuries, and um, uh, providing them with a degree of, of psychological counseling, someone to talk to who understood, because many, of course, of, of the men were also war veterans, and it did two things. One, it salvaged these wonderful young men, and it also gave some of our um, veterans who were suffering from the very bad case of survivor survivor guilt, something to work on and some feeling that they were still being able to productively uh, uh, help uh, help others and to to for to uh, contribute to society mm -hmm. rather than simply sitting around drinking beer and saying those were the good old days or mm -hmm. um, reliving combat horrors that. Uh, to be able to progress and move on and make lives for themselves. So it was uh, you said they were met and they were given lodging. Sounds like they were checked in the local Holiday Inn. <laughs> How were they put up and, and in, in what families well, and who paid for them? Mostly um, Odessa paid for them. And they, they well, I can really only speak with the group that I had, mm -hmm. but I think they were more or less typical. Um, the ten of them lived in a, a home uh, which had been renovated and was staffed by a very wonderful motherly lady who had actually lost sons of her own in the, in the war and really took those boys under her wing and many a young trooper cried himself to sleep, uh, cried his eyes out on, on her ample bosom saying, you know, she, she just took over being mm -hmm. mother to this young group. And then there were some of the men who were very careful to act as role models and to be there to counsel them and uh, actually help them adjust uh, help them adjust to some of their physical problems. One of my youngsters had, had lost a leg and it was very difficult for him. Um, 
many of them had dental problems from being beaten. Um, there were other injuries, injuries as well, physical problems, but also the necessity of not saying, turn around and forget it, that you don't do, but put it behind you, realize you have to go on, it's your duty to your country to go on and to make something of your lives, because actually you are the future.